0: I wrote a few poems and kind of one or two people saw it. And one of my favorite ones, obviously, is one I wrote about a, an Irish pub. I went to 33 Irish pubs in three days and tried to capture the essence of what that was. Uh, and at the time, you know, we put that on Facebook and not, this was just my own page putting it up. And you know, we had a few hundred thousand views. And we're like, oh, shit, people actually really connected with this idea that the Irish pub was uh, a museum you could drink in. It was a uh, town hall before we had town halls. It was a place kids could go and sit in the corner and play while the parents would meet and socialize.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, I'm Chris LeBeau. This is the Decoding Cocktails podcast. And um, I I vow to you right now that at some point in time, we will put out a, uh, a bad podcast episode. Unfortunately, that day is not today. My guest is Kevin Piggott. He is the global brand ambassador for Tullamore Dew, which is the second largest whiskey brand in the world, founded in a mere 1829 uh, out, of course, of Tullamore, Ireland. Um, Kevin and I got introduced through a uh, former podcast guest, and uh, I was already excited that we get to chat. And as I dug into Kevin and his background I and interests, I couldn't help but get even more excited. So beyond his work for the brand, uh, Kevin is uh, has uh, adopted uh, being a spoken verse and written poet and he has just some absolutely magical verse that he has turned out into the world. One of the um, best known things, and all this will, of course, be linked to in the show notes, uh, is something he called the uh, Lament of the Irish Pub, which you heard about in the open of this. And it is to to listen to that and to not smile, or if you're me, cry, yes, cry, Uh uh, you're not, you're not doing it right, in my opinion. It's uh, it's such a beautiful sentiment to the culture that exists around uh, bars and pubs and spirits and beer and all of these things. So I just I I, I am uh, I'm so grateful that someone like Kevin is turning this out into the world because it's I think it's incredibly beautiful and moving. Um, beyond that, Kevin talks about you know. the world of working in the spirits industry. How do you stay balanced and healthy? And you know, it's not always easy. But he certainly talks about some of the things he's adopted to try to make sure that like I just emailed Kevin uh, earlier today, Uh, we talked a couple of months ago, and it's just able to come out now. But I got an out of office that he'd been on the road for two weeks and was finally taking a day off. And so what are the things he's doing to make sure that he can stay in this industry, many people he joined with many years ago, he says, uh, have unfortunately crashed out because they um, they kept hitting it too hard after a while. And so this is certainly an important aspect to this industry. Uh, one thing I would be fun to mes- mention is uh, amid the era of all these celebrity um, uh, spirits on the market, uh, Tullamore has a campaign out right now called Celebrity Free Since 1829, and we'll be sure to link to some of that content. It's pretty good. Um, I also thought it was valuable, you know, sometimes, you know, one of the benefits of traveling to other cultures is to be able to see what life is like there. How does that make us think about our own life or the place we come from? And so Kevin talks a little bit about some of the differences and similarities between American and Irish pubs. And uh, I'll leave that to you to help you think about what does that mean you want out of the next time you're out with friends, family, etc. We will certainly, uh, you'll hear us dive not only into Tullamore Dew, but Kevin thankfully broke down kind of some of the broader categories of Irish whiskey. Speaking of Irish whiskey, it's kind of in a surge time. Um, winding the clock back for a long time, Irish whiskey was actually much more popular than scotch and so much more popular that a lot of scotch was actually branding itself as Irish whiskey at the time. That then inverted for a while, and now Irish whiskey appears to be on uh, the edge of uh, taking, overtaking scotch again. So uh, great time to be... In the industry. Um, so yeah, that is a little bit about what to expect today. Uh, Kevin just has a, a wonderfully warm, uh, good sold personality. And I was very lucky to be able to talk with him. Um, you can find him online at Tullamore, T-U-L-L-A-M-O-R-E, Kevin. Uh, there'll be a link to that in the show notes, of course, as well as to Tullamore Do. So enjoy this conversation with Kevin. So, you know, Kevin, despite all the places we could start, uh, one of the things that caught me, took me most aback as I was kind of digging into our conversation was the amount of uh, verse and poetry that is in so much of the footage I've seen you documented in. And I'm curious, how much of that is a a Tullamore thing? How much of this is what speaks to you? How did you end up here? Because it is in my opinion very powerful and i just wanted to hear more about that
0: yeah it's a good point it's become a bit like a Venn diagram where the both have interlaced uh, i guess one positive of the company is that you get the freedom to express how you feel is a great way to bring the brand to life the brand is about community and connection how do i connect with people sometimes through words words are incredibly powerful they start wars and they end them they end lives and they can save them They're incredibly powerful on our worst days and our best days. We remember the things that people say to us. And the Irish have a love of lyrics. I guess definitely when I started on the brand, there would have been a lot of recognition of the Samuel Becketts of the world who would have drank Tullamore Dew and quite openly sort of lots of famous stories of poets and playwrights drinking whiskey as like a, a muse whilst they played with their... You know, um, the back of a cigarette, but some poetry or uh, the corner of a napkin or a diary or a notebook. And that sort of manifested into this pen and pencil culture who drank whiskey. A bit of an old romantic notion, but even if you read like some books up in Sweden, they have like six or seven novels. You'll find that the writers often he has the protagonist drinking Tullamore. Um, and it just had that association, not just with Tullamore, but with some Irish whiskeys. There's even another Irish whiskey's uh, called Writers' Tears, you know, uh, a bit morose, but interesting t- to think of the alignment with that culture, uh, that creative culture. Um, And, yeah, the poetic word, I, I like poetry is for the page. Some of the greats, Seamus Heaney, but spoken word is for the stage, right? Poetry is to be read, spoken word is to be said. And I love the uh, embodiment of that, that you can, particularly with groups, you can have quite... um fun ways to describe Irish culture, uh, say lyrical toasts, say stuff that can be quite frivolous, humorous, or quite serious, um, all in the one sentence. Um, So I I obviously enjoy it. I started a few years ago with Tullamore writing toasts. And then I wrote wrote a few poems and kind of one or two people saw it. And one of my favorite ones obviously is one I wrote about an Irish pub. I went to 33 Irish pubs in three days and tried to capture the essence of what that was. Uh, and at the time, you know, we put that on Facebook and not this was just my own page putting it up. And you know, we had a few hundred thousand views. We're like, oh, shit, people actually really connected with this idea that the Irish pub was uh, a museum you could drink in. It was a uh, town hall before we had town halls. It was a place kids could go and sit in the corner and play while the parents would meet and socialize in a climate where we don't have broad summers that are warm and you know cold wet winter wet nights there's nothing nicer than being in a a cozy pub with friends whiskey music those were ways to get by and we've carried some of that cultural lessons through so I wanted to give homage to it the poem was actually called the lament of the Irish pub because the country pub I guess is struggling Irish drinking habits actually quite interestingly are dropping dramatically the last 23 years we've dropped our alcohol consumption in terms of the total Aggregate cultural consumption is down about 20%. So it's quite significant. So people are drinking less, but drinking better. They're drinking, you know, instead of saying, I drank 20 beers, they're like, I drank four of this beer, you know? Um, So we're definitely seeing that trend that's being shown in the figures. It's not just, you know, lip service or rhetoric from a brand. It's um, very clear to see in the macro data. So I think that's a cultural phenomenon where we're losing a bit of our culture. Um, because we're becoming so um, segregated by technology. Today we're having this podcast, you know, podcast 20 years ago. You know, people would have probably interviewed you in a pub, sitting at the bar, and you would have got to share a whiskey together and talk and shake your hand and how nice that would be. Now, this is great because you live across the water. We get to stretch who we meet. But uh, it's so important to build that conviviality and more, you um, close tight-knit places and an Irish pub and in particular an Irish snug that little closet area that alcove of a bar it's so often the best way to meet someone you can get sitting in beside someone you don't know and you start up a conversation by the end of the night you could be kind of best friends and I I love that and I miss that um sorry that was a very long answer to what was probably a shortish question
1: this is a, this is a long answer podcast right here. So you're doing that, that. That was great. Yeah. I, um, I remember, I think one of the things, I think it was pinned to the top of your profile and I'll, we'll be sure to link out to the, uh, the poem you did about the 33 pubs. Cause I thought it was great, but I saw your piece about also, obviously a, a part of your reign as global ambassador has been, you know, the pandemic and, you know, you, you called it connecting during the great disconnect. I think it was. And yeah, I think it was so interesting to see the way that community was rebuilt in a way online, but, Mm -hmm. but the power that you and I would share if we were in the same room, just the amount of intimacy that's capable is so much higher. And the goal is how do you lose yourself in a conversation like this to feel like you're still at least a bit in the same room. And yeah, I think, um it's funny how at times I still feel like there's a bit of like a, the the chance to go out with friends and family is still very much there now, but there's still a sense of loss. I think I still feel from those couple of years when that felt very hard and to be in that tight space and just time melts away. There's something truly magical about it.
0: Absolutely. I think you're trying to capture the essence of human connection, which we all need. We are social creatures Uh, throughout most of our history humans have lived in these tribes, connecting, gathering, sharing everything. It's hyper-communal. And we've lost elements of that. They've done quite big research in the US over the last 50, 60 years. And they asked people, if you had something terrible happen in the middle of the night, how many close friends could you call? And that number has gone from like six to one to sometimes none, depending on the state. It was like really sad to kind of see, but if you're in these places online only, you miss out on that deeper human connection and that can feel very lonely. If you're getting the balance right where you're utilizing the best of both worlds because we can't live without technology and it's amazing, it allows us to do so many different things if we can find that better balance. And I guess that's what I was trying to do with the eye contact experiment. So we sit down in cities, anywhere I go, I've tried it in the US, in New York City, sat down in Washington Square Park, just put out a yoga mat and anyone who wants to sit down talk share eye contact people sometimes cry laugh all types of reactions come out sometimes people share really heavy stuff going on in their lives they ask you for advice just because they've no one else to ask sometimes it's easier to ask someone you don't know um so yeah it just led to really great conversations sometimes there weren't conversations i had a 70 what, 78 year old or a very old italian man sat down with me one day and he didn't speak any english and he just put his hand on a glass panel that was separating us and it was super passionate I don't know why he wanted to sit down his son was like say in his 40s he was like my dad wants to sit down with you and I was like we can stand up he's an old man he doesn't have to sit down and cross his knees in the street and he was adamant he wanted to sit down and I love I hope I'm like that old man when I'm older that I want to connect with some random kids sitting on the street who just wants to restitch a tiny part of human connection a little bit And probably just give people hope that I wanted myself. I was feeling pretty, the world, you have those days where you're like, holy crap, we're losing so much of what is amazing. And that's part of what I love about my job. You know, I was in the US two weeks ago, six, seven cities in 13 days. I got to meet incredible people, old friends, new friends. That's what this journey life's all about, these incredible encounters. And um, we need to put ourselves out there because the more we get out into the world, you meet these people and your hope is i guess blossomed or you know yeah
1: from the uh in terms of the pub but also connecting with people you know are there things that uh you know america obviously has a vast number of them so does ireland but are there things you witness in a pub in ireland that you think it would benefit people to think about with respect to how we can change that culture in the U S at all? Do do you see a lot of, like, I guess what is different Mm. and what is the same? How do you, do you have any thoughts on that at all?
0: So I think, yeah, I think there's a lot more similarities than people give credit. Like there's amazing neighborhood bars in America that are just like Irish bars. It's local people. They all know each other. They're all giving each other shit. It's quite convivial. You know, it's a group of workers all coming in. It's like a Friday at the distillery. Guys are coming out. They go to a bar, have a few beers and just kick off some steam. And there's something very um, decompressing about that for human beings to chat, to talk. And I think the pub on a Friday night was kind of a beautiful place. I saw that, particularly in Chicago, some beautiful neighborhood bars. I think New York has it too. I think one of the big differences in America is I see sport seems to be so central to a lot of themed pubs we probably don't have as many defined sports bars and you'll have you know 35 screens in a bar um but there are examples that contravene that max in new york doesn't have tvs it's all about conversation and there's bars like that in dublin the palace whiskey bar in fleet street they don't really have they might have tvs for special occasions but it's not typically showing anything they don't really allow a lot of music in the bar it's all about conversation so some bars in Dublin, contrary to what you might think, they don't really encourage singing. It's about conversation. And then there's other pubs really designed for the singing. So I think in Ireland, it's a bit more about music and conversation. In the US, it's a bit more about sports and a bit more about food. Um, mm. You know, in the US, you have a huge, there's always snack or food at the bar. In Ireland, traditionally, that wasn't the case. Now, to modernize, a lot of pubs have had to uh, adopt food um, as a way to, you know, build a revenue stream to make up for people that drink less now are more considered in their drinking, which is great to see. So the, the model of the pub has changed. Even in Tullamore, one or two of the busiest pubs are probably the pubs that serve good food and good booze. People go out, have a nice dinner after work, and then they can have, because you want to have something in your stomach if you're going to have three or four whiskeys. So um, that's definitely one of the things. That I notice um, that reliance on sport versus the sort of leaning towards music here in Ireland.
1: Yeah, and uh, and you know, there's there's not a right way to 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 be in a pub, but I think um, yeah, that that is something that at times, if you go to like a super intensive sports bar here in the U.S., it is going to be harder to have really an in depth conversation just because there's so many visual stimuli and. Or when those awkward pauses that happen, which are natural in conversation, and I don't know if anybody loves them, like you get to avoid those because you can just look at the TV, but do you really ever get deep into, you know, the rapport, the giving of shit to people, et cetera, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely harder. It's definitely harder. Um, And I think that's why, particularly you think here in Dublin, there's just, there's probably... A handful of old Victorian style bars and they're just so centered on a proper chat you know a really more profound deeper catch-up and I think that's an interesting thing about what we're doing right now podcasts because I would have thought podcasts in today's culture would not survive with the TikTokification of everything but actually podcasts are the um antidote to our deprivation of deep conversations we want to spend two or three hours listening to a deep conversation because sometimes that's what you need to have to get somewhere to scratch beneath the surface and I think that's the gap that podcasts are filling now for people because they're not getting them in their real life no one has time to have a two or three hour so they listen to it on their commute while they're driving while they're doing their shopping um which I think is interesting. We still need it as human beings. We're just trying to find it elsewhere. And podcasts are filling that gap right now.
1: I, uh, I I couldn't agree more. And something I think about, honestly, was I'm prepping for every interview. And I mean this in a very genuine way as I think about even myself as, you know, you, Kevin, or you as Kevin, the ambassador, like me as, me, Chris, we all have like the talking points that we can end up leading with. And I and I remember one of the podcast hosts who I always kind of looked to, Tim Ferriss, he said, you know, he's like, he's interviewing oftentimes, he's very famous people. And he goes, I need to have them talking long enough to get all their sound bites out. And, <laughs> and how do I create a space where, yeah, as opposed to needing you to answer a question for me in 30 seconds, mm. that I can give you a forum to really express yourself in full. So I can hear what's really on your mind as opposed to like, You know, the the thing you have to get across in 20 seconds, which is just yeah, yeah, not interesting. Well, not as interesting, I should say.
0: Yeah, it's true. I did a lot of TV slots, obviously, in the last few weeks for the U.S. I did five, and like that, you have like 90 seconds on TV, and you're kind of being told what they're going to ask you, and you have to say it as succinctly as possible. And then it becomes that a soundbite. There's not a lot of depth to it.
1: Mm -hmm. So... Kind of digging in further, you know, to part of the conversation today. So, I'm I uh, I'm sure that the market of and demand for Irish whiskey is broad. But I remember seeing at the top of the in the early 1900s here in the U.S. that Irish whiskey would have probably been the most popularly consumed. You know, we are uh, in serious, seemingly the moment of bourbon right now, and so and it's great that to see something that what that was for a long time at least more overlooked or more of a working drink to see it so popular but for people that are less familiar with a spirit like tullamore away from a a day like saint patrick's day they're a bourbon person when they're opening a bottle of irish whiskey or tullamore what are Mm -hmm. they going to find in that in terms of flavor and aroma compared to maybe a bourbon
0: uh, like any whisky from a place, it's representative of the land, the the terroir, the landscape that influences everything about the, the barley, the rye, the corn, whatever the base material uh, or substrate is for gathering that sort of beautiful, you know, endogenous enzymes that we're hoping to get to convert to fermentable sugars. The... The sense from Ireland is that um, it tends to be a softer spirit than I I think some of the bourbon alternatives. The reason being that obviously in bourbon, quite renowned for its intensity, its pungency. It's going into a barrel the first time. So that virgin oak has so much to give. And that intensity is incredible. I like a lot of bourbons. Uh, I like the Hudson bourbon. I like Woodford Reserve. There's a few ones that are really punchy. I like them and stirred down and brown drinks. I think they're probably the best base for a lot of old fashions. Really incredible sort of viscosity and texture and depth. Lots of caramel, um, lots of vanilla. Um, when we think about flavor compounds derived from the wood the first time. The Irish whiskey t- typically used in seasoned barrels that have already had something else like bourbon in it before, and typically sherry in our distillery, you're gonna get softer notes of that so you see that golden amber in the irish whiskey versus the sort of more um rich mahogany that you're getting from the bourbon so a little bit like a tea bag being used the second time it doesn't have perhaps the intensity of flavor sometimes it obviously depends on the brand and the variant there's different ways to dial up and down the intensity of an alcohol the cask type the abv um various other sort of distilling choices Typically in Ireland, we'll distill differently as well. So, distillation is about the readiness of a flavor compound to convert. Okay. So, it's volatility to convert from a liquid, you know, to this alcoholic vapor. So, we're boiling beer, you know, it's like a teapot. But what we're doing is we're really refining the spirit, we're distilling. So, we're removing some of those flavor congeners that we don't want, some of the heavier, oilier more viscous so we're trying to get something that's lighter silkier smoother and perhaps has an ester profile that's more apparent on the nose so maybe more fruit notes coming through in Tullamore it tends to be citric green apple those type of dimensions that come through that maltiness I feel in American because you're using corn as a sweet it's quite sweet as the base Uh, in Ireland a lot of the whiskey centers around malted barley um, obviously there's a, a complex sort of mash bill or ingredient list that goes in uh, we don't just use malted barley but to give a sense of top line differences I think those are two of the key ones that I always I like it tends to be a bit softer to drink you know neat uh, if you're very new so I think Irish whiskey's attractiveness to that younger cohort um, was definitely people getting into whiskey and then moving on and trying some bourbons later in their sort of as their palates developed a taste for whiskey. Irish whiskey had this accessibility because of the triple distillation um, and just the wide variety of flavors. I think people don't realize 45 Irish distilleries now, and it's quite you know significant. I know you said bourbon is flying, but Irish whiskey is on fire at the moment as well. Um, so these two things are happening in unison. If Irish whiskey keeps growing at the rate it's growing, it looks like it'll pass out scotch in America which is a huge market and just a bit of a, a shifting of the, the tables, of the powers, because once upon a time, obviously, as you highlighted at the start of the question, Irish whiskey was there, but it completely flipped. After World War II, the Scots being a little bit better probably preparing for the end of prohibition than the Irish. They were very um, savvy with their foresight at the end of prohibition and probably had some internal um, whispers knowing more than the Irish, unfortunately. But here we are in a new golden era. So it's definitely an exciting time to be a part of it and to try some of the different ones that are out there. There's so many. Irish whiskey is not just, you know, one thing. Rock and roll is not just Bruce Springsteen. Hip hop is not just Jay-Z. There is a plethora. I think that's why the consumer is in such a good space now. There's so much choice for really incredible whiskeys. If you think Irish whiskey is one-dimensional, just pick three or four bottles off the shelf uh, that have different bottle shapes and you're pretty certain to get a, a very different flavor profile in terms of the distillation, the barrel type use, the age of maturation. Uh, I think that's the final point. The age of maturation for Irish whiskies will tend to be a bit older because they don't have those hot, humid summers that you might find in Kentucky. Mm. We're not losing as much to evaporation. and American whiskey can't, you know, you don't see too many 12-year-old whiskies on a back bar but there's a lot of Irish and Scotch because of our more temperate climate. We're losing less evaporation. So we have an ability to mature. So if we're able to mature for longer periods of time, the Tullamore 12 year old, lots of other whiskeys have a 12 year old. It allows us to get deeper, richer flavors deep within the wood structure that only time allows to permit entry to. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you talking about it as more that, that gateway in a way too, because I, I run into in my world of education all the time, as you do, but people who are, they're almost trying to strong arm themselves into bourbon. And one, I'm like, put it in a cocktail, stop trying to drink it and eat if you're hurting yourself. But it's mm. its nice, this idea of like, oh, if you're curious about whiskey, how about trying something gentler first and develop kind of you know, a taste for that. And then maybe you can find a way to tiptoe into something bolder because- You know, uh, and it's something I have appreciated more as I've gotten older, like I remember when I first started drinking wine, however many years ago, it was like something big and bold and mean kind of had an appeal. But over time, there was something that was nice about more of a a subtle finesse to something as opposed to something that just kind of comes in and wallops you or whatnot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there is definitely this culture, you know, at whiskey festivals where people just want to jump in at a a cast strength whiskey. You know, and I am I I don't have that deep love of castor and whiskeys that I think other people have. Occasionally I do, but it's not my, I'm not a snob that thinks it has to be a 50%, 100 proof bourbon to drink it. I think that's a limiting view, a limiting mindset. There's some incredible whiskeys. Any of those people, if I blind tested them on some of the best, most awarded whiskeys, they wouldn't be at the ABV that they would in their head perceive that. I think there's a bit of machoism coming out in that. Um, that's classic, unfortunately, sometimes in whiskey culture. But we need to be more open-minded and just say, yeah, you can like those things, absolutely. But it doesn't mean it's the opposite to drink a, a 40% 80-proof whiskey, which is still incredibly potent. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, In terms of getting more into the juice that is Tullamore, to understand kind of the the choice that blenders make to create something so Tullamore isn't a whiskey it is a blend of three Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what like if you're tasting those on their own what's going in to ultimately create this final product right here
0: okay so the Tullamore blend it's a made up of three styles of whiskey that are the three styles made on our on the island of Ireland. So single grain, single malt and single pot. Now I think of single grain like a pizza base. On its own, it's not that interesting, but it's integral to the overall composition of a pizza. If cheese is my single malt and pot still is my pepperoni, I've got this pizza, okay? So it's the culmination of building on this neutral light sort of style. The grain whiskey tends to be light, floral, sweet. That's my base. That's the building block of a lot of blended whiskey. And then upon that, I want to drop some single malt to give some fruitiness or some pot still to give some particularly spice and spicy text, like a texture to it. I often think that uh, the florality, the malt gives this fruity ester profile that's just very different to pot still, which is way more about texture and mouthfeel. I guess the, the truth of why we came up is back in the 60s, there was a reformulation of the Tullamore Dew blend because they looked at the market and Powers and Jameson, two huge Irish whiskies that were part of the same company at the time, would have had a recipe of a grain and pot still base. And they felt that those had a particular appeal to them and they needed to differentiate Tullamore. It was probably too similar in style. So Tullamore had some single malt added. It became a triple blend and had this added complexity that the other two whiskies didn't. As a way to differentiate it because it was the same person going out promoting those two whiskies and then tullamore so if they were all kind of similar it, it made it hard to actually sell them all because people were like well i'll just take that i have tullamore so i don't need a powers they're very similar so it allowed this broadening of the the flavor palette that came from tullamore adding this depth of flavor and you had the first triple blend so it's just a more complex um, combination of the styles of whiskey that we make in Ireland and it became incredibly unique in that way because most Irish whiskies, over 90% of sales are two whiskies blended a grain base with either malt or pot still so grain and malt you'll see the tealings grain and malt will be the Bushmills grain and malt will be the Kilbegan styles the Powers the Jameson the, you know, there's quite a, a series of Middleton-produced whiskies that would be the grain and pot stuff. They tend to be those double blends focusing on the spice element. And Tullamore mm. just was the lucky brand that got all three. Since then, I think five other brands have copied that style and have made triple blends. So I think that's a good sign that other people are saying, actually, the amount of permutations and combinations of flavors you can create with three styles is limitless. So even in the distillery, one of the things I made during COVID, I worked with a guy about creating a blend your own machine. So in our distillery, you blend your own whiskey and you can pick the proportions of each you want. And we actually kind of show you how hard it is. Sometimes people make a whiskey and it's terrible. Sometimes they make one and it's incredible. And they're like, shit, yeah, you've got just so many things you're trying to balance here. And if you're not careful and you use too much pot still, you overpower the whole thing. You've just got a watered down pot still whiskey. So it's quite interesting about how you you understand flavor and balance. And we think about that when we cook. You know, if you add certain ingredients, a little bit of salt or garlic, it's not the proportion. it's the power in which it influences the overall dish. And if you don't understand that within the context of whiskey, you don't know how to blend a whiskey. Um, so I think that's where the art of blending comes into play. And uh, The blender in, in the Tullamore arena is far more important than anyone else um, because that's what our base liquid is about. Distilling is a more clear science. You can learn that quite categorically. Yeah, there's some innovation there. We do some really interesting sort of ways of distilling and exploring different distillation styles and methods. But the blending element is of utmost complexity and importance within the Tullamore Mindset, the Tullamore Dew liquid. Uh, and a lot of our whiskeys, the Tullamore Jew XO is a triple blend, but just finished in a rum cask. Our 12 year old is a triple blend, aged for a longer period of time. In the US, there's a 15 year old version that's still out there, uh, a triple blend finished in rum cask for quite a pr- pr- long period of time. So all of them are different, sort of um there can be different combinations of the the triple blend so if you think of the 12 year old it's a higher percent of pot still because we wanted more texture and body on an older age statement whiskey to give it that mouthfeel so i often find people who like bourbons will like that 12 year old a lot i feel supremely confident that people who like higher end bourbons your maker's mark your bullet your um woodford reserve will really like a tullamore 12 year old However, we have a 14- and 18-year-old single malt. I wouldn't recommend them to bourbon drinkers. Typically, they don't like them. They're very fruity, and often that puts them off. It's much more designed for a person who might like single malt scotch, like Glenfiddich, Balvenie, Glenmorangie, Macallan, and so on. So it is really important to know what people... That's one of my first questions I ask. What do you normally drink? Because if I give a bourbon drinker some of our single malts, if they're not open and used to those hyper-fruity... Fruit bomb whiskeys that are all about fortified wine notes, sherry, sultanas, figs. They really won't. It'll be so different to what they're used to. Uh, it won't work. Um, But I find the Tullamore 12 fits that profile. Slightly sweeter, a bit more body, a bit more texture because the bourbons have that because of the intensity of flavor. They get the first time. There's a bit more in alignment in terms of what people expect.
1: I, I love giving the power of blending in a small way over to a visitor because yeah, to see, you know, that it's, uh, you know, that every year the the, the grains, the barleys can be a little bit different in their, their flavor, you know, overall. And it's mm-hmm. that, that, that consistency really is out of an, an understanding of what blending looks like as opposed to it comes out of the still and it's just done. Uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. So are they able to taste like like the, the standard Tully green while they're tasting their own like uh, little little blend at the same time?
0: Well, one thing we did to try and be a little different is I actually put the whiskey components through ultrasonic atomizers and it sprays out a smell of each of the styles of whiskey because they typically won't have tasted a deconstruction of the blend. So they get to actually nose each of the elements. So organoleptically, you're as capable with your nose, you are with your mouth to identify. So we're trying to train them to trust themselves, listen a little bit, practice and, and and discern, oh, I really like that or I don't. And based on that, let that inform your choices for the blend you would make. But like that, you'll get people who make two different combinations and they'll buy two bottles because they want to try because they're actually not sure if they're going to like a pot still heavy blend or a malt heavy blend. And you'll definitely have had the guys who have tried to recreate the Tullamore blend and they'll Taste it more that we get the message on social media a week later i've been drinking it with the total Jew, and i think mine's better in which case we say we'll we'll ring them up and do a deal um you know your signature chris lebeau blend
1: that's right that's right uh <laughs> that's that's fun I, I like that a lot right there um so as a quick aside i was interested just to see because like i um One of the things I find so fascinating about alcohol and spirits and whatnot is how often, you know, there were medicinal ways in which these things were used. Uh, and, uh, so seeing kind of obviously like, okay, you can treat infection and, you know, or with regards to certain, you know, uh, vermouths and tonics, like obviously we're treating, you know, various illnesses, but I saw, what was it somewhere that, um, Because it seems to exist in so many cultures, but that the word whiskey is actually a a Gaelic in its origin. Is that correct? Are you from? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, Gaelic, uh,
0: the Irish language, Gaelga, you have this word that originates from Latin. So, aqua vitae, aqua being water, vitae of life, vitality. And then, if we transfer that to Irish, it would have been this sort of Ishka. Ishka is water. Baha, baha's of life. So water of life. Ishka was an Irish word. We were obviously ruled by the English for 800 years. A lot of the Irish language was beaten out of the culture. There wasn't an ability to articulate ishka, ishka became fuisca, fuisci. So that was the anglicized version. So a lot of words you'll see an Irish word and you will see the English. The English word's kind of close because they English, they anglicize the word, <clears throat> excuse me. So that's kind of the how language evolves over time and how it changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see it in, in more subtle ways in the US where you see, um, I have a friend, uh, Caitlin Corkery, you know, and her second name, this hybrid of cork Kerry, two regions. Uh, people whose names in Ireland would have been Mac Mahon or O Fadden and then in the US it seems to be just Fadden it's like a drop the O so how over time spellings just evolve um, so yeah, Ishka Baha Fushka, Whiskey and Whiskey then with that sort of spelling that tended to be without the E and then over time got an E built into it probably as a sign of authenticity that it was actually Irish Whiskey because yeah. a lot of sc- like whiskey was being bootlegged as Irish whiskey um so that's like 1878 the truth about whiskey you start to see these documents and some brands start to to discernly state that an e is Irish whiskey not all brands did there's some rare exceptions that um new movie that won the Oscars the the um Irish movie the Banshees of Inishirn they have a an Irish whiskey mirror in the background and actually had a journalist write to me he was like it's missing an e why was that but it was a person's whiskey in galway and norman island and they just didn't use the e. just true choice so it wasn't illegality uh, enforced that people think it was sometimes people say an irish whiskey has to be spelled with an e but there's quite a few examples to lay that don't yeah um,
1: yeah for all the scotch lovers out there uh, while the tables turned certainly for a while there was a period of time when uh, scotch whiskey was impersonating irish whiskey because of its uh because it's brand appeal overall, so.
0: Absolutely. And if you think, right, if you had never left America, it's 1905, you're in Montana, and you see a, a name that sounds Irish-Scottish, the languages have a Celtic origin and similarity, very hard to discern. Um. Right. So, you know, we still have that around the world. Scotch has huge issues with counterfeit. If you go to, you know, somewhere like India, you'll see a brand called the Bag Piper, Right. And that's clearly the bag Piper from Scotland. And it looks like a Scottish bot, but it's a locally made whiskey, you know. So um, there's a few of those questionable ones in different parts of the earth for Irish whiskey too. They tend to have pretty catchy, cheesy names like the Purple Shamrock or something pretty terrible. Um. Yeah. So you will find them on the Internet like everything else.
1: That's right. Everything's out there. If you look hard enough, you can find it all. <laughs> <laughs> so i also saw just because i would just like in terms of volume i've i've not been there before but uh i think i saw you post that so you guys largest account in the u.s is the buena vista cafe mm-hmm. and, and kevin they punch out like two thousand irish coffees a day is that so,
0: yeah crazy so it's uh obviously it's in the bay area um in san francisco It used to be kind of a fishing village. It used to, you know, it kind of has a fascinating story if you read all about the Buena Vista and the owner, Jack Copler, who, you know, 1952 seems to have popularized the Irish whiskey in America, not invented it. I don't think it was the first one. It's very hard to say. I think there was lots of other bars probably getting to grips with the Irish coffee over there, but I messaged them actually the other day. I was talking to some of the bartenders there and they told me they did 3,000 on St. Patrick's Day. Um, I've been in behind the bar. It's a very fast-working environment. It can make 15 at a time. They've kind of just perfected it. You would think that by making it very fast, it's not going to taste good, but actually the appearance can be a bit messy because they're quite quick, but they just have the routine. like They're using good whiskey. They have two sugar cubes, so it's not a, a free pour of simple syrup that can be different per glass. They stir it really well. They use a really good hot strong coffee. The glass is small, so it has the perfect balance of all the ingredients. They use a thirty six percent cream, that's like a, a lovely higher fat that sits lovely on top with minimal effort, and it's kind of designed to have a second. You know, I think no more. You probably shouldn't have any more. You just always have to be careful of caffeine and alcohol in your body at the one time, and the effects that that has. But um, it is a delicious drink. Northern California can be a bit chilly. When I first heard California, I was like, "Oh, yeah." You know, I was thinking of SoCal, and I was like, "Oh, why would you need an Irish coffee?" And it's like, no, San Francisco is chilly, and it can like be nicer in the day. As soon as the sun sets, you get a, a quite a different change in temperature. So I really understand why that drink took off there. But they've just become iconic. I mean, they used Tullamore back in the fifties. They tried one or two. I think they did their own blend. They tried another Irish whiskey, uh, maybe even two. And they just kept, came back to Tullamore. I think they wanted it, you know, sometimes you do things for a while, you want to try something different, see if there's a better one. And they're back using Tully after, you know, 70 years now, nearly, which is pretty crazy. Um, and yeah, such a big, it's crazy to think that, I always think there should that place should be in Ireland. When people come to Ireland, you should be getting this incredible theatrical experience. Um... You know, some of the bartenders are so—they're good fun. They're—they're they're actors. You know, they're—they're they're able to um, be talking to fifteen people, separate conversations, saying hi to regulars that come every, you know, summer for their holidays, and then they're back down with the tourists and they're mixing in between. It's got a cool vibe. I have to say. Hmm.
1: Next time I'm out that way, I'll have to check it out. its uh, i i think I've—I've certainly seen. Other than when I saw you post about it, I, I've seen footage from there before, and I just didn't realize that that was the bar where it was happening. And I do think on one end, you can be reckless with a cocktail, but I also hear a number of bartenders talk about people that are, uh, you can you can be too fussy with a drink to the point where you kill the mood or you're just doing things that aren't necessary. And And the drink like the Irish coffee, it's a pretty sturdy drink if mm. you... You know, it's, it's hard to, with the right care, you know, it's, it's hard to mess up because of all the cream, the sugar, the, like, it just has a lot of big things happening. And so, you know, yeah. it's, it's more about the, the sensation that it has to be perfect every time. So,
0: yeah. I would online, people always find a reason to pick it, you know, different things. But honestly, do you think the best Guinness comes in the cleanest glass? It probably doesn't.
1: <laughs> you know? <laughs> So day to day, I mean, obviously there's a lot going on, but as you're thinking about growing or just expanding the reach of Tullamore, you know, you guys are the, is it second largest whiskey, Irish whiskey just in the U.S. or globally?
0: Globally, yeah.
1: Okay. So at this point in time, like what does that, is it just still one bar at a time, you know, like, like meeting clients or how do you think about like reach and, and, and growing something like this?
0: It's mind-boggling when you're in 82 countries. I guess you have to prioritize a handful of markets that seem to have a a, a love of Irish whiskey or an understanding of what it has to offer. And a, a team there, distributors or salespeople who are really passionate, that's one thing about America, part of the success. I was down in Florida. There's a guy, Pete Ketchum, a sales rep there. He loves Tully. He's obsessed with it. And it's his baby, he wants to make it big. And I'm in bars and guys are telling me 10 years ago, you couldn't get tell in half of these bars because of that guy, it's everywhere in the city. And it seemed to be on every menu people were drinking and all the cool bars, the cool cocktail bars. It was very impressive. Um, so I think some of it's down to that, that love of people that if someone, America has a passion for it and obviously America has a passion for Irish whiskey, for Irish culture, that's embodied in the St. Patrick's Day celebrations that we saw recently um. that, that helps channel it. Occasionally, you have to just take a, an intelligent guess on a market that you think could become the next big hit. So Tormorju is huge in the Czech Republic. It's a relatively small country. It's in Eastern Europe, people wouldn't know a lot about it in terms of its spirit drinking culture. They would know it drinks a lot of beer. Uh, and wouldn't have been traditionally a whiskey market to people's eyes, but if Tullamore too is like one in three whiskeys drank there is Tullamore, much bigger than Jack Daniel's, much bigger than Jim Beam, um, you know, sensational. So there's other parts of Europe where we're quite strong. The Nordics were quite strong. Um, so they're not some of the markets you might have traditionally thought. Um, so I think you need to pick one or two, um, you know, half court throws kind of, and see what happens. Something might come out of them. Um, but then you've got to just keep taking your layups the places that are good opportunities to to slip in to work with people who are passionate and it is it's bar by bar dram by dram getting people to taste it and it's it's you know thousands of people moving in one direction it's not one person I often thought at the start one person could shift it it's not you know I'm doing my little bit but there's a, a lot of us doing their own little bit and Thankfully, we have a bit of tailwind behind us with people drinking more Irish whiskey. And we've just, you know, this, um, I guess, headroom of growth where it seems like there's more appetite for people in bars to want more Irish whiskeys. If they have our original, they seem to want our 12, they might do an Irish coffee, but they also might do a whiskey sour. So it's broadening where we can show up, which is quite cool.
1: So... To seeing you, I think you said, uh, uh, seven cities in thirteen days or whatever. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things I couldn't help but notice on your little email signatures, we were corresponding, was you know being. Uh, I think you, it was written a uh, mental well-being champion. How does a global ambassador who is, on, you know, on the road all the time? How do you? What are the things you enjoy doing when you have a downtime or you're in the city? How do you try to keep your feet on the ground despite the fact that you're everywhere all the time?
0: Yeah, it's uh, the ultimate question uh, or a challenge within my role for sure. Um, honestly, I try and embody balance in my lifestyle as best I can. That's not just a statement. I try and demonstrate that in social media. So you'll see me swimming in the sea, doing meditation retreats or reading lots of books on psychology. Uh, self improvement um reading huge amounts of different books about the human psyche and trying to understand myself and the world around me um yeah dr- drinking in this industry if you're really careful I'm here 11 years because I found that balance the people who started with me are not here some of them enjoyed it too much it's hard to be disciplined um I've had days where you know that's been harder to do um but you mature as you get older a little bit wiser um, slowly, not a lot, but just a little bit more wisdom. Uh, and that's, I used to be the global chair for two years for William Grant as a whole. So it's a voluntary role where you try and instill a wellbeing culture across the business. Uh, we have a lot of people who are workaholics or work like crazy and don't get that balance right. And we want to make sure people are okay. So I, I feel passionate about it. That two-year commitment highlights that or proves that in some sense. Um, so yeah, like hot yoga for me, the reading, getting in the sea brings down anxiety is stress big time. It just drains the lymphatic system and has this ability to make you present because you're forced to be there. I have a huge fear of the water. Um, so I hadn't been in the sea in like five years. And during COVID, I needed something to to find some peace. And it helped me a lot. Uh, a colleague brought me swimming. Um, shout out to Rob Ryan former Tully ambassador but yeah he was just knew I was in a having a shitty time he reached out and got me in the water and I kind of pushed that fear and every time I get in it's like pushing a fear so I think those are ways that I find balance I definitely have got just a bit more wise on my like drinking habits I'm getting a little bit careful like if I'm having a beer sometimes I can have a bottle instead of a pint to take in less calories I don't need to order doubles ever of whiskey it's not necessary I can sip one if I want another I can have another I try and drink three pints of water on most sessions. So if I'm going out for work, I'll have a pint of water before I leave the house. I'll have one halfway through, and then when I get home, so I'm, I'm hydrating quite significantly. The more I fill myself up with water, I'm not going to excessively drink either. Uh, I try and skip around now as I've got a bit older, because we stay out for you know hours at the time with people. You just sometimes it's good to skip around. So sometimes I've just had a diet coke or something. I'm still drinking, I'm still there, but I just skip one round. Um, yeah, and then just try and sometimes tell myself I don't need that very last drink. So little things that I definitely didn't tell my 22-year-old self when I started. But um, yeah, we get there. We learn those hacks. We don't always follow them because we're humans so and we make mistakes. But um, I'm definitely getting a lot better. Um, I'm in pretty good shape, uh, you know, in terms of how I've looked after because I want this is uh, a company I love. I enjoy what I do. I love meeting people around the world. It's a true statement. It's not a, a place I'm in for 18 months and jumped out to the next thing. Uh, it's led to most of the best things in my life. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm quite, um, yeah, I don't know if uh, this work has just given me a platform to do things where I got, you know, someone rang me and was like, oh, you're the Tomo Ju guy. Would you come and do a stand-up comedy gig for this show? And I got to push boundaries and, you know win an amateur comedy show and to do spoken word events and be on tv in different countries radio to meet interesting people like yourselves who want to talk about what we do um i'm very grateful and to um showcase longevity in the role i want to be a a representation of that because it's very easy to be the party guy when you're a whiskey person but um i want to show balance in the best way i can um, I'm actually well, I, my dream would be to go back and part time study to be a therapist and that the company would somehow allow me to have a hybrid of both roles. So for bartenders in the hospitality industry who can't afford therapy, um, you would give them free therapy in cities that you would visit and slots where they could come and get that because a lot mm. of them don't have healthcare programs. And then you could do social events that are a bit more moderated at night. So it's so kind of showing, yeah, you, you don't have to go out after your 12 hour shift and get hammered. Um, and if you want to survive in this game, you won't because that, that lifestyle with all the other things that come with nightlife, it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't, uh, the body keeps the score. That's what I mean <laughs> one of these books, the body keeps the score, it keeps the count, you know? So Okay.
1: Body, body keeps the score. I'm going to check that one out. I, um, yeah, I, we all have to approach this wellness and well being crap the way we need to. But I, I, I like your outlook a lot because to me, like something like a dry January, you may have done it, you've known people who've done it, but to me, it's always about like, it feels very draconian. And after this is over, are we just going to go right back? And to your point, it's like, Yeah. To me, it's like, I always say like when I'm out, I'm double fisting. I've got water in the left hand and a a drink in the right hand. And Mm. what are the things I'm doing to be more mindful of how much I'm, I'm having to your point of Mm. Irish, you know, alcohol consumption going down 20% or so, how much of that is drinking stuff that's more flavorful. So I just need less. Uh, but also maybe the culture just doesn't as much reward, like just being blackout, Drunk or whatever, and so, yeah. To me, it, I'm I'm still really only while I'm not inexperienced as a drinker. I'm really only two and a half years in being in the industry. So, uh, so trying to like when this stuff is suddenly all over the place, I still have the days when I'm a little deeper in the pool than I meant to be. But yeah, trying to put those safeguards in there to recognize that I love being able to teach people. I love being able to learn from people like yourself and. The body does keep the score and if i want to play in this game for a long time i need mm. to find the right way to to be more balanced with that
0: absolutely couldn't have said it better myself
1: Uh just one other thing is is kind of top of mind for me but if there's anything else you want to chat about feel free but uh uh regarding irish culture when you th- uh think about like all the people you're interacting with are there common things you find that people maybe uh misunderstand or oversimplify about irish culture for people that haven't been or i haven't been in 20 years uh you know what are the things that people should know about irish culture in terms of beyond the spirit itself you know the people it's representative of but just uh, yeah uh, I i anyways i uh I ran too far with that question. Tell us a little bit about Irish culture.
0: Yeah, uh, well, I'll, I'll start with yeah. There are definitely things that I think no culture likes to be pigeonholed, right? You know, for me to say an American is this—that's such a stupid statement.
1: Fair There's, enough. There's yep.
0: like the best person in the world lives in America, and the worst person, right? You've got that spectrum. Yeah. So it depends on the state, depends on the person. There's it. it just depends on the 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 side of the bar. Um. So. I think sometimes the perception, oh, Irish people, you all like to drink. People don't like that because it's like a dimming down of culture. We have this richness of culture that's beyond drinking. Drinking can accompany it, but there's lots of things I do that don't involve drinking. But just that perception that we're all drinking all the time feels like a, a lazy trope from Family Guy. So it's funny, you can make jokes. I don't mind that in that sense, but I definitely think some of our culture, people who don't drink feel a bit, oh, I'm not your stereotype of what you want me to be. You know, people can say a big, fat American. That's not representative of huge portions of Americans that I know. And it's not, you know, it's not a nice way to depict a whole nation of 350 million. So they're just, yeah, things that you have to be more sensitive to. I think the thing, one thing that's a bit sensitive in my eyes is always the car bombs. It's a drink in America. They often say a Belfast car bomb. It's quite a sensitive thing to say. I think if you want to say like the drink is a bomb or it's a whatever, but to say an actual Belfast car bomb, it's um it's hypersensitive to people who've grown up in the troubles. It's the equivalent of saying a nine eleven bomb. So I think when right. you tell people that they're like, holy shit, yeah, I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. But I actually had a, a waitress ask me in Chicago last week. She was like, hey, I've had a few people order that. Is that offensive or what? And I love that she was a young waitress and she asked the question, wanted to understand, didn't try and, you know, be like arrogant or anything. It wasn't like feeling bad that she know. She just asked the question. And we were there was a group of Irish people at the table. And we were so happy she asked the question, we explained it to her, and she feels now way informed. And it was just a really nice, like, this is how human beings can discuss things. We can ask awkward questions, we can say things and ask, like, I don't know, is that okay to say or not? And, you know, it doesn't mean that some Irish person might be okay with it, but I just want people to understand that there was a time when car bombs were used as a terrorist kind of activity. so that's to me an offensive thing. And I, I know friends who own bars in America where they'll kick you out if they ask that. Um, but you know, that's I don't think a lot of people don't mean badness with it. I know some of these young, they're college kids in a bar. They're not bad people, they're nice to talk to and they just ordered because they saw it on a menu, right? So they're not thinking we've all made those mistakes. There's lots of things you can call me out on for probably saying it. But it's just like if people could could be aware of that, that would be cool. Um in terms of Irish culture, I think it's like the music that's happening right now. For me, it's just like, you know, sometimes you go online, you ask people, I go around the world and you ask people, what do you know about Ireland? They mentioned Bono and Enya, and like culture has moved on since then. We have like Hosier, one of the most like streamed artists in the world, His song Take Me to Church, one of the years is like the top song that's like streamed on Spotify. Uh, Derma Kennedy being a sensation, there's so many new Irish artists with like really broad arrays of music and when I go around the world I think people don't even know that Hosier is Irish um, you know in the acting sort of realm we've Barry Keoghan now doing incredible work with his uh, supporting actor and role in the Banshees of Innish obviously you're Colin Farrell Brendan Gleeson but even other actors that people don't tend to know Paul Mescal, uh, going to be in the new Gladiator um just this small country on the edge of Europe punching its weight um people like nelson Mandela coming to ireland once upon a time and saying like ireland inspired him to find peace in south africa during apartheid um it just shows that small groups of people can change things can influence things can punch above their weight and to think you know countries all around the world went green for saint patrick's day and wanted to celebrate this small rebellious little culture that has something special about it And I think that gives hope to everyone in their community, their town, their place, whatever you're proud about, to be able to espouse those great values and hopefully that someone takes some of that. You know, in Chicago last week, the conviviality, the friendliness, people were so nice to me because they're like, Ira, you're in Chicago, you got to check out the river, you got to do this. This is a great bar. It was only positivity, you know. So that was a beautiful thing to experience. And how proud does the people of Tullamore feel when people are drinking the whiskey all around the world you know it's a small town it's not the most you know busy place but we our whole new campaign is all the actual people from the town on billboards all around the world and uh, you know shane was one of the guys he's all over chicago his brother is lives in chicago and that's why i wanted to put some of them there his brother like ran down and got a picture with his brother who obviously lives like six thousand miles away on a billboard and the sense of pride like that's my hometown brother. It works in a bottling hall doing, you know, the the day in, day out, nothing glamorous, um but these are the people that make our whiskey and we, we often forget that when we look at a bottle on the shelf we just think okay, it's there, but actually it keeps a small town community in Ireland going and it creates an incredibly fun place to to visit, to work and to be that sense of community is what we're trying to ship around the world, I guess.
1: So first, thank you for uh, straightening out my question there, because you're right. For someone to say Ireland is, or Irish people are, or American P- Americans are, that's obviously uh, in, in, uh, an oversimplified answer. So, I, I, I thanks for taking it where you did. And and I, uh, as part of kind of my research, I had bumped into a New York Times article that it recently highlighted a number of rising uh, Irish musicians and whatnot. So I'll be sure to link out to that article for people too. Cause I spent some time trying to listen to the music as well. Cause yeah, so often music can be representative of a culture, especially one that is where music has such deep ties. Um, yeah. And for any, and for anybody that hasn't seen, uh, Tullamore does have a fun campaign on right now. What is it, Kevin? It's like, you know, famously without celebrities or something since 1829. Yeah, celebrity
0: yeah. free since 1829. So the whole <laughs> new campaign was about Real people, you know, uh, trying to be the antithesis of you're Ryan Reynolds and you're The Rock and you've these celebrities who make millions are just going to sip aside a brand that they've had no actual, you know, they're not distillers. They don't, but they're a famous face and that works in today's culture. And Tullamore's just never had that money. Uh, we're not in the stock market. We're not, you know, some of these major brands. So we're a family owned company. We make these much slower, long term decisions. And like I said earlier, we build it bar by bar. So it's a much slower process. You know, we're 194 years getting to where we are. We're not a, a lot of these new brands are five, 10 years old. Right. You know, where was Terramana a few years ago? It doesn't have history, heritage in the same way that some older brands do. Um, and it's not calling out those as if like they're ship brands. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying they use the celebrity to like use their weight to build the brand. We don't have to, we've got really good juice. We don't need a celebrity's goodwill to get you to try it. That's a key difference. And if you think about that, it says a lot more about what's in the bottle.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the in the battle that so many people are thinking about right now of, of drinking less, you know, it's like drinking something with heritage and story is, is a whole other thing too, like allowing that drink, that juice to transport you you know, back in time, in, in whatever mm. little way it can, as opposed to buying something that's like, oh, like, you know, like, hey, uh, Terra Mana is fine, you know, aviation gin, they they're fine. But, uh, but yeah, buying something that feels like it's, it's a story in a bottle, as opposed to marketing in a bottle is, uh, mm. is nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When you get the rock on for your next interview, just tell them, I'm sorry I said that. Yeah.
1: That's right. That's right. Don't, don't chase down Kevin and beat him up. He seems like a pretty nice guy. He, He's I'll
0: on the rock. If he yeah, catches t- me, I'm in trouble, but uh, I don't think he's...
1: That's true. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, Kevin, where can people find you and Tullamore online as we kind of wrap things up right here?
0: Tullamore, Kevin, there, there on we go. Instagram. That's, that's right. probably the easiest one. Uh, yep. And yeah, there's Tullamore Jew uh, on Instagram as well. Obviously, the website's good if you're yep. trying to look at more like cocktails and that, but the Instagram's pretty good in terms of like, Finding information, seeing campaigns, learning about new products, uh, seeing if we're doing cool events in certain cities near you. Um, and then yeah, feel free to interact with the brand, message us if you have questions. We're pretty good at getting back, sharing ideas, thoughts, letting you you know, giving advice. People who are coming on a trip to Ireland wanna visit the distillery and do some other stuff. We'll give you some pretty cool road trip tips. Um
1: Okay. Yeah. And uh yeah, to people out there that want more than just a picture, uh guess like I said, at the top of the, the interview, uh, uh, t- tune into Kevin's channel for some pretty fun uh, times uh, spoken word stuff too. We'll link out to some of that. So uh, Kevin, uh, I we're, we're approaching uh, 9.15 in Dublin. Uh, so it's uh, it's time for us to get you off so you can wind down your evening. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you. It's a lovely interview. I wish more people were a little bit like this style. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.